Welcome to another edition of Heartland History. I am your host, John Lauk. Our show is produced by Dana Brown. Today we are joined by Andrew Jewell, who is a professor of digital projects at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Andrew is an expert on Nebraska's own Willa Cather, and he is the editor of the Willa Cather Archive. Andrew joins us today from his office in Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Hi, John. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be part of this podcast. Andrew, let's start today by talking about your roots in Nebraska, which are very deep, as I understand it, and how you got connected to the overall research project of Willa Cather. Sure. Well, I am from Nebraska. In fact, I'm a sixth-generation Nebraskan um, and proud of that. My family has been in the state a long time, and I grew up in North Platte, Nebraska, and uh, did my PhD in English at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln several years ago now, and uh, was able to study Willa Cather, who the study of Willa Cather was a something this university has been engaged with for a long time, and I was mentored by Susan Rosowski as a graduate student and really found Cather's work to be some of the most beautiful and meaningful and rich literature um, that was out there, and it was a wonderful to be able to connect it to my own personal story as a Midwesterner in Nebraska. and. Some of the themes that Cather evoked were familiar to me, and pleasantly, many were new to me. And there were things brought in connection to uh, the state in this region that I did not expect as a young person, like opera, um, like uh, you know, artistic ambition, and things that I know now are present in every part of the world, but I was pleased to see and put in Nebraska when I became a reader and studier of Cather. Did your family ranch out in North Platte? Uh, uh, no, my my uh, mom is a nurse, and my dad worked in the insurance business for a long time. Um, so they weren't ranchers, but of course, uh, a lot of ranchers were around, and a lot of railroaders uh, around in North Platte. The Union Pacific Railroad um, was really important there, uh, but my family didn't do that. I think I remember... Um, uh, and I'm testing my memory here, but I think Cather's father got into the insurance business when farming in Nebraska didn't work out too well. That's right. He didn't. Um, he tried farming for a little bit, but not for very long. Uh, Cather family soon moved from uh, a farm where her grandfather and grandmother had property into the town of Red Cloud after a year in Nebraska, and her father did lots of things in insurance, and it was one of them, yes. So you are from North Platte, Andrew, and Catherine is from Red Cloud, and you both attended the University of Nebraska. For people around the country and around the world, can you situate those towns for us in the geography of Nebraska and tell us uh, how Cather and her family thought of themselves. Did they think of themselves as uh, Midwesterners, as people on the Great Plains, as Nebraskans, or how did they they identify themselves? Well, so Cather was born in Virginia, where her family had been for several generations, and came to Nebraska with her parents and siblings to in which she was nine years old. 
And at that time, she had an aunt and uncle and grandparents and um, other friends and associates and family in Nebraska that they joined. Uh, there was even a precinct called the Catherton Precinct that was named after her uncle George. Um, and they came to, and had a little Virginia population, migration population in south central Nebraska. Red Cloud is uh, south part of the state. It's quite close to the Kansas border. Um, and I think, you know, that they then lived, her parents lived the rest of their lives, more or less, in Nebraska. Um, Heather, though she, as a, um, after college, she did move east to Pittsburgh first, and after a decade in Pittsburgh, then in New York City, um, and those are her permanent addresses. She regularly came back to Nebraska throughout her life, and her formative years, you know, between the age of nine and finishing college were in this state, and therefore, so much of her imagination and her fiction was um, created out of that experience and those memories and the people that she knew. So. She and her family, I think, had several points of identification. One of them, of course, was Midwestern, was Nebraskan. Um, Tather became a major spokesperson uh, um, for Nebraska when uh, different writers from around the world, were, around the country, excuse me, were asked uh, in the early 20s to uh, represent a state for a series in a magazine that the Cathars represent Nebraska and to write about it. And, and she became well known as a writer of the West and of Nebraska. I think her family, though, often thought of themselves as Virginians for a while, but um, did certainly embrace their um, new Nebraska life that they created for themselves. When uh, Willa Cather's father made the decision to move from Virginia out to Nebraska in the 1880s, uh, do you know why he chose Red Cloud? I think he chose that area because his family, he had some family there already. Um, the first Cathers to come west were George Cather and his wife Frances Smith Cather, or Frank as he was called. Um, and George and Frank, uh, kind of looked around. They had a relative in Iowa. They stopped there. Then they came to Nebraska and found land in Webster County, Nebraska. Um, and then soon George's father and mother came, and then his brother Charles came with his family, which included Willa Cather. And it was really about economic opportunity, I believe. But there's also um, some other things sort of in the air in Virginia. Cather, the Cather family was uh, a pro-Union family in Northern Virginia who lived with a lot of neighbors who were pro-South during the Civil War. Um, and there is definitely some conflict around that. Now, they stayed in Virginia for you know a decade or so after the Civil War. There certainly were some tensions around that issue that I think some of the suggestions over the years that they were driven out um, or that uh, that it was really very, very contentious and difficult. I think those have been overstated. They did have a barn that burned. Um, some have kind of hinted in some scholarships that maybe it was arson, though um, the, the accounts I have found suggest it was a spontaneous combustion sort of thing, um, and or, or you know that something overheated and. and burned and that it was such a financial loss that that was a motivator, but not because of a threat, but because of a financial loss. Uh, that's interesting about the Civil War. Of yeah. course, many Union veterans after the war moved out to the uh, 
what, what would be the western reaches of the Midwest at that point uh, to begin homesteading and begin settling. And that the area uh, that you describe around Red Cloud would be about the place that would be about the line of settlement or the line of homesteading. So that would make sense. And if they are that close to Kansas, uh, maybe they found some pro-union uh, Yankees down there that they 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 thought was uh, they thought this area was very amenable to their political beliefs. Yes, and I think that's true. And it's no coincidence that the river near where they lived is the Republican River, um, and the Republican River Valley and Red Cloud is you know in that area. I think that was dominated by pro-union um, Republican sympathies. So, so yes, that's true. I might also mention that there was a lot of uh, illness and tuberculosis in the Cather family, and uh, Charles Cather had a couple of sisters who died quite young, and they believed the damp um, atmosphere of, of the, where they lived in Virginia contributed to that illness, and so getting west to a drier climate was also something that motivated the family to move. So Willie Cather grows up out on the prairie around uh, Red Cloud, Nebraska, and then decides to move north, which I guess is an hour or two into the city of Lincoln, Nebraska, um, to attend college. Can you tell us about that decision and why she chose Lincoln and whether or not it was a debate within the Cather family that she would go to college at all? The generally understood belief is that her parents saw her curiosity, saw her um, intellectual gifts and her ambition, and really never saw any other alternative but to um, support her in education. She ha- she was quite supported by her family, and um, years later, in, in the 1930s, she wrote a story, Old Mrs. Harris, which reflects on, has, has a character that's a young teenage girl and wants to go to college. It's very much a personal story built on her family, and it shows how in that story, it's not only her, her parents want that to happen, it's also grandparents and neighbors who are supporting this talented young woman to go to college. So I think um, going to college was something that she knew she wanted to do, and her parents and her, her community saw her gifts and supported her in doing that. And I think choosing the university was the choice she could make. It was the college that was accessible to her at that time. Um, you know, her sister ended up going um, back east to Smith College for part of her time, and, and so did some of her nieces, and certainly the college choices expanded. I think, though, that Cather herself, in her, at least in her immediate family, was the first person to go to college. She had an aunt who went to Mount Holyoke, um, but she uh, was distinctive. And, of course, the university was pretty new in those days. I think it was founded in 1869, and she came in 1890. Um, she first had to take a year as a second prep student. There was, uh, because of the irregular education in the schools across the state, um, not everyone had the Latin and Greek prepared um, to go to college, and so the university had a Latin school or a prep school for preparing students for matriculate into the university. She did that for a year, and then in 1891 became a first-year student and uh, graduated in 1895. And while she was at the university in Lincoln, she discovered her vocation as a writer. She first came here, she wanted to be a doctor, um, and uh, but she soon started writing. She got one of her professors placed one of her 
essay that she had written for his class into the local newspaper. She said later she saw her name in print and never went back. She loved that and became a professional writer while a student, and she was a columnist for the newspaper and did reviews um, of traveling musical programs, of uh, theater, um, just other kinds of columns about life in Lincoln, um, and actually got quite a reputation as a very... Uh, I want to say very difficult critic. She was called the meat axe critic. Someone called her that because the people who came through on touring shows into Lincoln would get often a pretty um, well-informed and high standard review from young W.C. in Willow Cather in the local paper. And she did that for um, her whole time here and was very busy and edited the student literary journal and participated in the student literary societies and did pretty well in college and really excelled and decided that she wanted to pursue a vocation in writing and literature but also in journalism and that was what her first career really was it was in journalism what was the nature of the english department at the university of nebraska in the 1890s was it a large department and who was it in the department that inspired uh, willa cather to become a writer it was not too large. The whole the university itself wasn't too large, but um, it was significant, and it attracted some really talented um, faculty in those days that uh, were definitely inspiration not only to Cather but to other notable members of her class, like Louise Pound and Edith and Grace Abbott, and other people who really had remarkable careers. Um, there are a couple of professors I can think of that were significant in different ways to her. Um, one was Herbert Bates, who uh, was someone she very much uh, liked and was influenced by and was a scholar. And she um, was used him to, to generate the character in My Antonia named Gaston Clark, who was a teacher that inspired the character Jim Burden in that novel. And Herbert Bates is thought to be a prototype for that character. Another guy that she talked about but didn't necessarily um, feel too inspired by, but who was the chair of the department was um, Lucius Sherman or L.A. Sherman, and he um, had a strategy to do analytics of literature where he would have the students kind of quantify the effects of literature and have them count up certain uh, things in Browning poems and Shakespeare and and look at the stresses, and, and it's very, uh, you know, pseudoscientific, really, and she hated that approach. Um, she even mocked him in the pages of the literary journal and suggested that his classes would kill off any love of literature. Um, of course, then later, when she graduated and tried to get a teaching appointment in the department, it didn't work out for her when she had mocked the chair in the pages of the literary journal. <laughs> Sherman reminds me gives me flashbacks to the Dead Poet Society and uh, those yeah. famous scenes. Um, let me ask you about, uh, you said she graduated from the University of Nebraska in 1895. Uh, right. It was in 1894 or so when Hamlin Garland published Crumbling Idols uh, to make the case for literature and regional writing from the Midwest. Um, did she... Uh, take note of that. Did she have a connection to Garland? Did she have an opinion of Garland, or or don't you know? You know, I I cannot recall right now um, an explicit 
response to Crumbling Idols or to Garland. I, I, I think she would have known of him in some fashion, and I have a, I admittedly fairly vague memory of once seeing a letter in our collections from Garland to her um, later on. And I, and I, I honestly, I can't remember exactly what it says, but it was a loose connection. Um, when, when she was a young person, she was not really thinking about reason in that way. I think that emerged later as she matured. She was inspired by French literature and the European traditions and was very much a Francophile. And, uh, you know, in her letters to her friends, they were trading books by Dade and, um, you know, other, other writers like that. And so uh, she had to learn to see the tradition that she was a part of. And uh, it was after um, years of really focusing on European traditions, I think, that influenced her. Uh, during this period of time, one also thinks of writers out of Nebraska, such as uh, Beth Streeter Aldrich, and one also thinks of the formation of the still prominent literary journal Prairie Schooner. Uh, was did she overlap with uh, Aldrich or the or the Prairie Schooner people, or did that come later? Um, it came a little later, but there are some connections between them. I know, I don't know that she ever met Aldrich. Um, certainly, I, I'm one fact that I always found interesting that was in 1931. So this was in Cather's in quite her mature part of her career. Um, she had the second best-selling book in the nation that year, which was Shadows on the Rock. But the number one best-selling book was by Best Reader Aldrich, and I think it was a white bird flying. And the two Nebraskans dominated the bestseller list of that year, which surprises me and a lot of other people to learn that fact. Um, the Prairie Schooner came around a little later, but throughout its history, especially when Bernice Sloat was involved as an editor, and she is sort of the, the mother of all Cather scholars, she really did so much foundational work, but um, they did um, discover and republish some of Cather's um, writing in the Prairie Schooner and, and had several pieces about her throughout the history of that journal. You are listening today to Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I'm your host, John Lauk. Today I'm visiting with Andrew Jewell, a professor of digital projects at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and also editor of the Willa Cather Archive. Andrew, uh, we have been talking about uh, Willa Cather's time in Lincoln, Nebraska. Tell us about her decision to move east to Pittsburgh and New York and to fully embrace the writing life. Well, when she had graduated in 1895 and spent a year trying to figure out what she could do professionally, and she tried first to get a job teaching in the English department when she thought there would be an opening there at the university. Uh, that did not work out for her, and, um, but through some connections, she got a job in Pittsburgh. Um, and really, it's the job that brought her there, and it was to edit uh, be a managing editor of the Home Monthly Magazine, which was a magazine that was uh, not necessarily to her taste. She said it was a bunch of home and fireside rot, and that she would have to write about nothing more interesting than the care of children's teeth for some time um, when she was uh, editing that. But she was able to populate it with some stories that she wrote, uh, some of which were under a pseudonym and um, are uh, 
pretty superficial uh, stories. Um, but she filled the pages of that and began to learn the trade of producing a magazine. And that that folded that magazine after a little while and then she worked in the newspapers in Pittsburgh as an editor and a correspondent and uh, um, and then after a while she'd been doing that for five years she decided to try teaching because she really wanted to work on um, creating short fiction and novels and poetry and that kind of work and she felt teaching would be something where she could do that and then have some time in the summers to work on her writing um, and so she taught at Central High School in Pittsburgh from 1901 to 1903, and then at Allegheny High School uh, from 1903 to 1906. And during that time, she was writing a lot of um, work. She published a book of poetry in 1903 called April Twilights through a sort of a vanity press. But then in 1905, after place, placing several short stories and periodicals, um, she published her first book of fiction called The Troll Garden, which includes a story that is still, uh, or a couple of them that are still read and taught and studied today, um, including Paul's case and the sculptor's funeral uh, and other works that um, still seen as quite important. And they caught the attention of an editor in New York, S.S. McClure, who had an ambitious magazine, McClure's Magazine, and he recruited Cather to come and work for him. And so after, with that, he, she ended up going to New York in 1906 and uh, took a job at McClure's Magazine and worked there for another six years. Um, and before she left, really was kind of running the place. Um, S.S. McClure was a uh, man full of ideas, but um, often difficult to work with in other ways and would be leave for months at a time and had financial problems and got uh, bought out by other investors and kind of kicked out and she was there and she was the managing editor but more or less running the magazine before she left and some have said she was one of the most influential and powerful women in journalism before she stopped because that magazine had such wide circulation and wide impact on readership it was known as both a, um, a publisher of, of literature published you know uh, Robert Louis Stevenson and Arthur Conan Doyle and uh, other sort of well-known writers, but also for its investigative journalism or muckraking journalism, as it was called, because that magazine had invested in writers like Ida Tarbell and Lincoln Steffens and others to do uh, investigations of corruption in corporations and governments and then really revealed um, many things that affected the laws of the United States after um, some of these stories were revealed in the pages of that magazine. And so it was quite an interesting and, and compelling place for Cather to work. But there was this one letter she wrote while in the midst of that in 1908, and she wrote it to the woman Sarah Orne Jewett, who was a writer who was an important mentor to her. And she said that the though that her office work was interesting in some ways, she felt like she had no time for reflection. She had no time for the kind of creative activity. She really desired in her life to be a novelist. That she said, I felt like I was um, on a train going around the world, but I could never get off and see anything. Um, and uh, so she always had this desire to really give herself over to literary writing. And then in 1912, she published her first novel, Alexander's Bridge. Um, took a leave of absence from the Clures, went to visit her brother in the West in Arizona, toured um, some of the places around the Winslow area and 
uh, saw some of the ancient cliff dwellings that are there uh, um, in that area and was transfixed by it, was refreshed. Um, she said she felt as if her mind were washed in iron and were ready for a new life. And she she responded to that trip by writing O Pioneers, which was a kind of book and a new voice that really is seen as the moment she became the kind of mature fiction writer that we know and celebrate with a distinctive voice and a, and a distinctive um, subject matter of focusing on Nebraska, on the Midwest, on the kind of people, um, farming people, as she said, who were not well represented in the national literature at the time. And she did it in a way that, that over time especially, just gathered a really large and enthusiastic leadership for her. Andrew, you are also the co-editor of The Selected Letters of Willa Cather, which was published by Knopf in 2013 to widespread international acclaim. I saw reviews and discussions of this collection of letters uh, across uh, the spectrum in terms of literary reviews and uh, in the New York Times and in the, the Guardian of London. Can you tell us about uh, your work on that project and how many years it took and the response to the book when it finally came out? Sure, I'd love to. It's, you know, I was really pleased by that attention. And I think it, it really had everything to do with the fact that Cather for in the in the literary world, Cather is so well respected and her work is so well loved um, that people uh, enjoyed the opportunity to write about her with some new material to look at, um, which is the first time there had been new Cather texts published in decades and decades. So I should back up and um, for listeners to to point out that when Cather died in 1947, she left a will which asked that her letters not be published. Um, she did not want them to quote the will to be having to quote it in whole or in part. She just wanted them to be unpublished. She did not explain this decision, and I can go into my uh, my theory of why she made that choice. But I will say I don't think it was because of uh, hiding a secret. I don't think it was because of um, anything that dramatic. Instead, it had to do with a couple of things. One that she wanted to have her, she wanted to be represented by the works that she um, toiled over and refined and worked on very diligently, her, her, her published work, and wanted people to know her through that instead of through letters that she dashed off to friends and family over the course of her life. I think that was part of her sensibility in the late in her life, that that's how she wanted to be known. Um, and there are some other reasons too, I think, but uh, that was a dominant one. And so for years, her first two executors, um, first her partner, Edith Lewis, was her first executor, and then her nephew, Charles Cather, was her second executor. And they um, honored that wish to not publish her letters. And so her letters were virtually unknown to most readers for decades. There were um, scholarship that summarized or paraphrased contents of the letters that were accessible in some archives. Um, but anybody's summary or paraphrase is always unsatisfying when you have a, you're summarizing a wonderful writer and prose stylist. Um, so there was a great interest in these letters being published, and I happened to be 
uh, have a good working relationship with Janice Stout, who is my collaborator on editing that volume. Um, we had been working together on a representation of the letters called the Calendar of the Letters of Willa Cather. When we got word, or we understood that, or we believed that we saw a time when the legal situation around publishing her letters was going to change, um, and indeed in 2011 with the death of her nephew Charles Cather uh, and a change in the legal um, standing of her will, that is, it's now the Willa Cather Literary Trust now manages her estate, and that is a collaboration between two educational organizations, the Willa Cather Foundation in Red Cloud, Nebraska, and the University of Nebraska Foundation, that we saw a, a change in, in sentiment about whether her letter should be published or not. Her surviving family really wanted them to be published, felt that they were wonderful letters. They had collected and given the letters to the University of Nebraska, um, um, for promotion of their aunt's work and life. Um, the educational organizations that had a legal standing also wanted them to be published. So Janice and I um, worked and, and pitched the idea to Knopf, who is Cather's own publisher, and said we thought we'd like to do a, a book um, that would give a, a selection of the letters. And we have 566 letters in that book um, that range from when she was 14 years old to uh, just a week before she died in 1947. Um, and we're very pleased at the response. And uh, I feel like I said initially that response is really about, and you could tell this in a lot of those reviews, they were about how much those writers um, really admired Cather, cared about her, and wanted to learn more about her. And I felt honored to be in a temporary position of representing her and her work and try to bring it forth. And I absolutely feel very much that it was the right decision to publish the letters as I've seen how the text of those letters have meant something to readers. You know, how um, in different ways, this has been one of the real pleasures of working on this. I've seen um, just in conversation or when I read other things, I've seen how texts that I could edit and bring out for the public have meant something to the readers, have have altered how people think about Cather or other issues that Cather is writing about. Um, and that's, that's a wonderful, wonderfully satisfying feeling. Andrew, I remember a book written or an essay written in The New Yorker in the mid-1990s by Joan Acachella, which actually became a book later on, I think, but I think the essay received the most attention, and it was about the politics surrounding Cather criticism and commentary and uh, the letters after they came out. 15 years later or so really seems to vindicate some of the things that uh, Joan Acachella was arguing in that essay. Do, do you have thoughts on this? I guess I hadn't thought about it in quite that way before. I mean, I, I mean, certainly academic criticism, um, not just around Cather, but around all sorts of topics has had uh, a, a politics to it. I think m most things do at, at some level. And I think Akachella had some really cogent points about how that can get absurd. And she pointed out some absurdities. I honestly think, too, that she wasn't uh, as sympathetic as she could have been to, to other writers and sort of 
lumped a whole bunch of diverse voices together in, in her um, in her book. One thing I, I had a chance to talk to Janaka Tello a few times, and she once described that book as a satire. Um, and and some of the strategies she used, I think, were meant to be a little bit like willfully. Uh, what I want to say, a little over the top, uh, uh, kind of in broad strokes. And she's a wonderful writer, and and it was quite an effective um, satire that she did. And I feel like the letters, um, at the last part of her book where she talks about Cather's complexity and Cather's um, rich and, and dark vision of, of the world, I feel like some of that especially, I think, is underscored in the letters where you get, um, you know, I think Cather in her, in her style and her work can get read, has, has sometimes been read fairly superficially and people see sometimes the pleasant surfaces and, and, and miss some of the subtleties in it. And Joan Actella was a wonderful reader to point out the many of those subtleties and is a great fan of Cather's and I feel like um, that letters give us lots of in lots of different ways, from lots of different perspectives, more examples of the richness of Kevin's imagination. Andrew, uh, lastly today, I'd like to ask you about the uh, tremendous work that you are doing and the University of Nebraska is doing in the area of digital humanities. Uh, I know many of our listeners uh, are drawn to the podcast via Twitter and social media, and they rely heavily on the digital humanities. Can you tell us what you're doing at the Cather Archive and University of Nebraska in general? Sure, and I might um, start by uh, explaining that term digital humanities, which is um, something not every re- listener will be familiar with, at least I offer it to people who ask me, what does that mean? And um, it is really a broad term that generally means the, the study of the humanities, literature, culture, history, archaeology, art history, etc., using um, digital techniques or computers for digital publishing. Um, and, it, and it's at the university, I'm very lucky and happy to work where we have the Center for Digital Research in the Humanities and many different researchers, um, both faculty and staff, who are doing all sorts of very interesting and diverse projects around this from you know, 3D modeling, recreating historic places and ancient archeological sites um, to the work that I do, which is um, a digital archive, um, an online archive gathered thematically around a topic, and for me the topic is Cather and her life and work, and the Willa Cather Archive um, presents a, a large range of materials from you know, digital versions of different texts, the first two, um, a geographic chronology, we call it, or a map-based biography of her life. We can track her many travels around the world and trace the connections to her writing, you know, um, large image, image galleries. And right now, uh, a project that is dominating a lot of our energies and resources, and I'm very excited about, is a follow-up to the book, The Selected Letters of Willa Cather, and it is the complete letters of Willa Cather. We decided we could not do edit all of the letters and fit them into any kind of affordable volume it would, um, and we, we wanted to do it digitally and so we, thanks to support of the National Endowment for the Humanities um, and the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, um, we are able to generate 
to complete letters that, that once it's finished, all of Cali's letters will be freely available online to anybody with an internet connection. They'll be search, fully searchable, they'll be annotated, there'll be scans of all of the original documents. You can see her handwriting and the paper she used and how, you know, when she edited a letter and how that looked. But also you can, because her handwriting is often difficult, there'll be full transcriptions that allow you to read her work easily. You'll be able to do things like, um, browse, search all the letters she wrote to individuals or in certain times and certain places. Uh, we hope to have like maps of all the different places letters are written from um, and all sorts of tools. I am very happy to work with a team of wonderful people from uh, several students, um, graduate students, uh, undergraduate students, uh, collaborators in the English department, including Kari Ronning and Melissa Homestead, two faculty members in the English department, and the staff, the technical staff of the Center for Digital Research in the Humanities. It's a lot of people working to do this in our first publication of it um, will happen in January 2018 when the letters go into the public domain and we hope to have 1,500 letters and we plan to have 1,500 letters ready for publication at that time and the total edition when it's done and hopefully we will, if, if all of the resources work out well, this should be by the end of 2020, we'll have all of the letters which right now is about 3,050. Um, letters. They, we keep finding new letters all the time. Of course, once you start, as Sue Rostowski, my mentor, said, once you start looking for materials, you start finding them. And you didn't think they existed, and we keep, new letters keep emerging, and that's another reason that a digital um, publication, one that is flexible and can be added to with some ease, is, a, is a, the right choice for this kind of edition. You have been listening to Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I'm your host, John Lauk. Our show is produced by Dana Brown. Our guest today has been Andrew Jewell, a professor of digital projects at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and the editor of the Willa Cather Archive and the editor of the Selected Letters of Willa Cather, published by Knopf in 2013. Thank you, Andrew, for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you again for tuning in to Heartland History. If you would like more information about the Midwestern History Association, visit us at midwesternhistory.com. You'll have access to information about memberships, news about upcoming conferences, calls for papers, and panel proposals related to Midwestern history. You might also be interested in subscribing to the print journal Middle West Review or reading our online journal Studies in Midwestern History. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook. Until next time.